You're listening to City of London Symphonia's Hero Worship with Brett Dean podcast. I'm Tasha, and earlier in April, Alex Regan and I were lucky enough to talk with renowned composer and viola player Brett Dean about our collaboration at the shiny new Queen Elizabeth Hall in May. If you listened to the last episode, you will have heard about Hero Worship from Matthew Swan and Alexandra Wood. If you didn't, don't fear, it's still on iTunes and SoundCloud for you to enjoy after. In this episode, you'll learn more about the narrative of the concert, hear about what inspired Brett to compose Testament, and there's a surprise starring role from the hall's curtain rails. But don't take a blind bit of notice to that. Brett. Thank you very much. Welcome. Um, Brett Dean has actually just been to the Opera Awards and congratulations on your gong. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Wait, that was, was for Hamlet? For Hamlet, yeah. So Fantastic. just last night in the Colosseum. It was quite a thrill. Great. Congratulations. Thank you. Great. So yes, as I've said, it's great to be here with you, Brett. You obviously, you work a lot with chamber ensembles and soloists, um, but I believe this is your debut with City of London Symphonia. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Looking forward to that very much. Great. And um, so what are you looking forward to about the concert? Well, it's just such an interesting uh, adventure in many ways, because it will be the first time also that I've worked with Sir Christopher Clarke, whom I've known for many, many years. Um, and so we're sort of departing from the the regular sort of orchestral concert format yeah. and, and breaking that open with his no doubt very insightful and, and also equally entertaining views on this stage of, um, of Beethoven's life and to that extent also what else was happening in world history and music history in that time, the time around Beethoven's voluntary incarceration in Heiligenstadt. And it's a very interesting time in terms of Napoleon as well, who he of course originally dedicated Eroica Symphony to Napoleon. Yeah, in fact the the first title for it was going to be Bonaparte, but then he tore it apart. And, uh, uh, and <laughs> I mean, there's even an image of, of the title page where he's with such vehemence crossed out any reference to Napoleon that it tore through the the parchment paper. Oh, goodness. So, you know, he was an impestuous character, of course, was Ludwig. Napoleon was obviously, you know, he was was the name on everybody's lips and was determining the shape of European history for for many years to come. And so it was a... It was a pivotal turning point in, in European history, for sure, and a very bloody time as well. Mm. That's the first time you're playing with City of London Symphonia, but I think you, you've got a bit of a history with Alexandra Woods. Yeah, well, the, the connection came very much through Alexandra, and we had first met um, working together at the Cheltenham Festival some years ago. Uh, and I remember delighting in in working with Alexandra and and it came as no surprise to hear then that she'd taken on the role of of you know leader and concertmaster of the of the symphonia because um she's one of those musicians that that is not only incredibly um excellent at playing her own part but has ears on stalks taking in everything that goes around mm. so an ideal leader type yeah. 
Um, that was already very apparent from when we worked together then. So very excited about about working together again. And of course, by then leading the Eroica Symphony, which we may come to again, but without a conductor, um, that's the kind of um, music making you have to have in order yeah. to bring that off. I mean, it has a kind of do not try this at home degree of difficulty to it, <laughs> uh, to sort of do a Beethoven symphony without a maestro standing there telling you how to do it. So, um, and, it and it makes it a very sort of communal chamber music-y approach to symphonic repertoire, which, you know, demands quite something different from the orchestral players themselves. How, how do you mean by different? All of a sudden, you know, you don't have that person up the front giving you signals. So you've got to have internalised those signals and the musical information that's happening around you in a much different way, uh, in a much, as I say, more internalised way. Yeah. Um, you've got to have self-initiative to, to kind of be leading yourself. Everyone becomes a kind of a, well, a chamber musician, but also a kind of a leader, and especially then the principal players of, of each string section, the principal players within the wind section. It's great for an orchestra too. You know, there's something, something very healthy for an orchestra to then... Um, lots of noise here. Um, lots of noise. Yeah, that's place. right. Yeah, it's live. Um, yeah, there's, there's something incredibly... Uh, healthy I think for, for orchestras to then have to rely on their own internal mechanisms their own internal sense of rhythm and yeah it's like like the best part of playing chamber music too yeah for our listeners who are listening at the moment it's just a curtain rail going across so um hope you don't mind the background noise so hero worship um it's going to be in the newly refurbished queen elizabeth hall that opened yesterday 9th of april um and it looks amazing from looking at the pictures online south bank center have done a very good job have you got any great experiences and memories of performing or what even watching concerts at south bank center well it's it's fan fascinating to be back actually because i've not been here in this building for some time in fact it's been closed and off limits presumably for couple of years I, I understand in, in refurbishing it but I do have very fond memories of playing here um, in groups from Berlin uh, when, I, when I first moved to Germany I was a member at the time of not only the Berlin Philharmonic but a group within or a couple of groups from within the Berlin Philharmonic um, and over a matter of a few years I, I played here quite a few times with both groups so in the QEH I played a couple of recitals with the Sharoon Ensemble named after Hans Sharoon who was the architect of the Berlin Philharmonic Hall um, and that was a, an octet formation um, and I'm sure actually in one of our concerts here we played the Beethoven Septet some of which will feature briefly in, in Hero Worship um, and then in the Purcell room I remember playing on a couple of occasions with the Berlin Oboe Quartet and we were at the time sponsored by the Park Lane group and uh, have very fond memories of giving the first performance of a new work by Colin Matthews in that very space so yeah it's great to be back it's um, very exciting can't wait to see how the hall's looking now yeah 
You've mentioned already about Sir Christopher Clark, yeah. who will be in the concert as well. Um, how did you how did you get to know Chris? Well, turns out that my wife Heather grew up in the same street in Sydney as like Chris Clark, and so they've known each other since they were about three or four years old. Mm. Um, and I first. Um, remember meeting Chris at the age of I guess 18 or so uh, when I first met Heather 18 or 19 I must have been at that time so yeah there's there's quite a lot of familial yeah. connection and history, history there yeah. and then later my daughter Kiki who was with me last night at the Opera Awards and lives here in London um, was a student at Cambridge reading history and one of her also most favourite uh, lecturers was Sir Christopher Clark, and um, I remember her telling me also just how wonderfully not only educative but also entertaining um, Chris's lecturing style yeah. is. I mean, he's he's also got an extraordinary facility with languages, but also with mimicry. I mean, he's great at voices. So if he's sort of talking about you know, Napoleon, he will be Napoleon in that moment, oh. you know, I mean, it's, it's quite, he, he was also, I mean, when um, Heather and Chris, you know, first knew each other as they grew up and were at school and so on, he was also musically very active, a bassoon player, mm. loves music to this day, it's one of his great passions, and so for him, I think it's also a wonderful way to combine his great loves, yeah. his extraordinary understanding, grasp and love of history uh, as exemplified through his remarkable and very successful books, including The Sleepwalkers, but also this, this incredible and deep um, love of music. Yeah, we're, uh, we're excited to hear what he has to say about Beethoven and you know, bringing about his historical significance to classical music yeah well i mean it was also such a as i, I said earlier it was a, a pivotal point in european history but also a pivotal point in music history mm. because the nature of of performance was changing it was turning into what we now you know appreciate and, and can enjoy with public concert halls that yeah. was just in its beginnings the whole Biedermeier emergence of a kind of um, you know, educated middle class that wanted to partake in cultural activities. It wasn't just for the courts and the churches then, it was for, for the general population. Um, the, the size of orchestras was increasing, the, the whole sort of magnitude and impact of, of music making was yeah. changing significantly into something like what we appreciate it today. Yeah, we've been uh, we've been talking a fair bit in the office about how, you know, um, Beethoven very much became more of a hero than yeah. he than he did an artist that was perhaps or not perhaps it was more of a servant class. Back yeah, then. and he was he was keenly aware of that and keenly aware of also the, the power of the arts and music to kind of unify people and and put across a message mm. of you know a humane message of yeah. of. Um, belonging together. Can you tell us a bit about the what kind of insight and intrigue Sir Christopher will bring to the concerts? Well as I as I say he's he's looking at ways of making this into a narrative that, that touches on all these aspects 
um, Beethoven's illness that took him to Heiligenstadt in the first place, the nature of, of his hearing loss. Um, it gives Chris an opportunity to also look at the, the history of medicine and what, at what point um, medicinal um, treatments and, and diagnosis and so on yeah. were at that point including um, he promises I think some fascinating imagery of some of the contraptions that yeah. were designed you know, oh, for wow. people that were, were in, in Beethoven's situation with the loss of hearing um, I mean obviously then the, the, the Heiligenstadt Testament itself is also an extraordinary historical document, I mean it's an insight into the nature of that hero artist yeah. um, that, that is incredibly powerful and and extremely interesting and mm. I mean he, he never he never sent it off this supposed letter addressed to his brothers it was found amongst his uh, his possessions um, and estate after he passed away so I mean it was an incredibly personal plea that in the end he chose not to share with anyone else and who knows? Had he sent it off, sent it off, uh, it may have been lost by now. Because certainly the interest in perhaps the estate of Johann Beethoven wasn't nearly as, as pronounced and and uh, and with such interest as w- with Ludwig. So maybe Johann Beethoven's papers were lost to posterity, and we may have then lost the Heiligenstadt Testament as well. Yeah. So because it was, you know something that he still had in his possession maybe that's why we even know about it at all um so i mean it it offers chris clark an unbelievably rich multi-faceted period in which to kind of paint this picture and, and fill in some of the gaps for an audience too what is it about the Eroica other than also its, well, its dimensions and its power and, and its, you know, the, the aspects of it from a, a musical, motivic and, and structural point of view that, that make it the, the revolutionary piece that it is. But what is the history behind that, you know, that we were touching on earlier about this desperate um, sense of betrayal at, at what what Napoleon really stood for as opposed to what he felt, what Beethoven felt he stood for, etc, etc. So, I mean, there are all these various um, aspects to the story. I mean, we just have to try and fit it into a (laughs) two-hour format. And, I mean, there's enough material there, even without the music, to fill two hours. So it'll be an an interesting and very, um, I think, I hope, a very rich and, and... and uh, fascinating evening. Definitely, and it's sort of, um, sorry, you were going to say something. I was just going to ask more, you've mentioned Beethoven's life. Um, the programme that we're doing is is a mixture of um, Beethoven's early symphonies and his septet and piano concerto, along with your piece, Testament. Um, can you tell us about the link between Beethoven's works that we're performing and Testament and how you went about writing Testament? Yeah, well, um, First of all, the, the, the opening part of the evening have some examples of who Beethoven was before the Eroica and who Beethoven was before his time in Heiligenstadt, because certainly that was a watershed moment in his life. It was a point where he was 
seriously contemplating suicide and then galvanized himself through the experience to go on regardless and it's that that force of will that I think made him turn such a, a, a new leaf in his compositional style. Yeah. Um, so we're looking at, as you mentioned and I mentioned earlier, also a bit of the septet which was up until that point his most performed and most popular work, a very um, inventive and still very popular piece of, of sort of divertimento type um, chamber music from yep. that time. Through also the, the undoubted power, but nevertheless within a classical model, of his earlier symphonies and, and the first piano concerto, for example. So putting that sense of where the septet stood in the, the classical Haydn-Mozart tradition, hearing that also then in a, an orchestral context. Then also the second symphony plays a role in that because it's the piece that he was working on when he went to Heiligenstadt. So he went to Heiligenstadt with a sense of, of worsening um, hearing and uh, a, a fear of, of a well-founded fear as it turned out of, of permanent hearing loss uh, in the hope of finding a solution to that yeah. which sadly didn't happen. Um, but also, so the, the second symphony is also a pivotal and interesting point because it, it does show some of his departure from the, the classical Haydn mm. model but shows definite influence of Haydn who was his teacher after all um, the, the wit and vitality of, of a, a fast last movement for example but also it just also exemplifies what a dramatic change it was between that and mm. the Eroica. In between then comes, as you mentioned, my piece Testament, which is inspired very much by his story and in, in particular uh, looking more closely at the, the nature of the Heiligenstadt Testament, this supposed last will and testament that he, he wrote, addressed to his brothers but never sent, um, in which he, with quite a deal of self-pity it must be said, um, paints the picture of, of this desperation that he felt um, to, to have at one, at one point in his life have been in possession of, of the most important faculty and yeah. sense, the sense of hearing, and to see that and to feel that ebbing away mm. was obviously a, a, an unbelievably desperate and tragic yeah. thing for him. Yeah, and his um, anguish is kind of in his third symphony. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And that's without even bringing the sort of socio and political yeah. aspects of, the, of, the, of its genesis into the, into the story as well. Um, so my testament is a, an attempt to get inside his head in a way. And so, I mean, I actually used some of the text from the original letter as a kind of impetus for the shapes of you know the melodies or, or motivic um, material uh, in a sense like a song without words yeah. um, but also in a sense largely by chance as much as design 
I had at the time that I was starting to work on the piece years ago and it, it started life as a piece for 12 violas and emerged later into the orchestral version that we're performing here and is scored for almost the same orchestra as the, as the Oroica Symphony. At the time I was writing it, I, I had taken my viola bow to my, my violin maker to get a rehair. And I went to pick it up and he normally puts, when I pick up a rehaired bow, he normally puts a first layer of, of rosin onto the hairs of the bow, this, this um, substance that helps create the, the friction between oh, wow. hair I've and string. Oh, I've always wondered what that is. Yeah. I'm a brass so, player. Right, so. yeah. So it, it's, it's the teeth yeah. that, that creates the friction and the contact between the, the hair and the, and the strings. And, and I'm a string player, but I hadn't really thought about it that much yeah. either. It was just a given. Yeah, yeah, you rosin you your bow. Get, you learn yeah, that you, you right from the start. And yeah, and that's part of also learning a string instrument when you start is... Yeah. The, you know, the putting the rosin on the bow. But I, I thought about it a lot when I realised and got home having picked up my rehaired bow that, that Kevin, my, my luthier in Berlin, on that particular occasion had yeah. forgotten to put any rosin on at all. Uh. And at first I was kind of annoyed. Oh, Kevin, you forgot to put some rosin on my bow. <laughs> I'll have to do it myself now. And it takes quite a while then to sort of put a couple of coatings on. But I was just then playing around with this rosinless bow yeah. and was fascinated by the sound of it because then I realised what a difference that makes. Mm. Um, it sort of skates in a sort of ghostly way across the strings. Okay. And I thought, hang on a minute, this is quite useful. Um, so it, it then becomes one of the sort of sonic metaphors in yeah. this piece. The whole string section comes on stage with two bows, one normal bow and one with hair that has absolutely, yeah. ideally, not a skerrick of yeah. rosin on we, it. Uh, we noticed that it was written in the, the front page of the school. Yeah, yeah, well you have to sort of point it out, you know, spell it out really. And, yeah. and you then have to encourage the players to know that you can clean the, the hairs mm. with, you know, soapy water or a damp cloth or whatever and wipe all the, the rosin off and it won't hurt mm. the hairs. I mean, they'll dry out and you can put rosin back on them later. Um, but uh, it also then takes a bit of getting used to. You're sort of mm. then encouraged to play in a different way. Um, and I think it's important to then to bring off the, the particular colour that the piece has because ultimately then you, you see the music more than you mm. hear it which is exactly what Beethoven ultimately went through himself. You know, this sort of haziness, and eventually by the end of his life he basically couldn't hear anything at all, they say. I mean, it's hard to know exactly, of course, but... So, you know, that's how that side of the piece evolved as well. You've got other techniques written um, in the score. It's a very um, detailed and descriptive score. Um, you've got lots of performance directions like slap tongue in the bassoons, um, toneless murmuring in the clarinets. Mm. Um, can you sort of describe um, what effect that brings to the piece and what you're thinking behind using those effects was? Yeah, well as I said it, the first version of this piece was written for 12 violas, in fact it was commissioned by my old band in Berlin for the, the viola section of the Berlin Philharmonic and indeed they, they were the people that first premiered the piece. Mm. 
But when there was the opportunity and a commission came from the Tasmanian Symphony back in my homeland um, to do an orchestral version, which seemed also very logical to sort of apply what was after all very much about this time mm. in Beethoven's life prior to the Eroica Symphony for the same sort of orchestra that Beethoven was writing for. I then I realised I needed to sort of explore what the wind instruments in the orchestra could do that that had similar metaphoric analogies yeah. to the rosinless bow thing of the string players. So the toneless murmuring, particularly in the, the two horns, for example, is is you know a kind of colour that I've I've used before and is something that is very intriguing and I do and I've always loved sounds from orchestral instruments that are hard to pin down mm. that somehow in a way take the orchestra out of the orchestra and replace it with something other than that mm. now in a large orchestral sense you can often do that by putting wacky and weird instruments into the percussion section because a percussion section can be anything from timpani and cymbals yep. through to pieces of plastic and bottles and junk metal and anything you like really that yeah. makes a noise. I often drum with my hairbrush. Yeah, yeah for, <laughs> for example. Um, but then in this piece that only has one um, percussionist as, as a timpanist mm. um, then it sort of was I guess incumbent upon me to, to find those other otherworldly colours and veiled colours within the wind section as well. So did that take a lot of experimenting yourself or Yeah, I mean I, in the case of the, the, the sort of slap tongue on the on the the bassoon or the or the murmuring mm. of the horns, that's something that I've sort of acquired I guess by trying it out in other pieces and talking with colleagues in the orchestra and so on. Um, and so you kind of just acquire as a composer a, a kind of compendium of what instruments can mm. do. Turns out they can do a lot of things yeah. that, that even sometimes <laughs> the players themselves weren't aware of. So you know, you kind of try and find these things together with the players in many ways. Yeah. Right. I think my, um, one of my favourite things in the score um, I first noticed in the flute was extreme air noise. Mm. Um, does, does that mean... Yeah, so you get more air than mm -hmm. sound, and that's sort of, in a way, a parallel to surface noise of the the bows. Yeah. Without them able to really grip the string, you get more surface noise than note. Okay. And so, so too is it when when you direct wind players, and it's particularly effective on the flute, of course, yeah. through you know sort of jet stream noises and and so on. Um, or, or um, you know, that, those very soft undertone yeah. uh, murmurings that flutes can do. That, um, you know, you, you sort of are similarly not really engaging with the note itself in terms of tone production. Mm. You're getting other overtones and, and these Zwischenturner, mm. as we say in Germany. Um, you know, sounds between the notes and that sort okay. of thing. It's, it's fascinating and it's very... You know, if you kind of handle it right, it can be very poetic and yeah. and very intriguing and mysterious. And, you know, mm. I like that. Because that's then when you start getting into other realms yeah. that are less easily readable. Mm. And uh, the abstraction 
photographs, like in painting or photography or whatever, that brings a sense of mystery with it too. And yep. So, you know, we don't know exactly what his feelings were, but we can tell from this document they were, as you said, also very anguished. Mm. But also that, that has lots of colours within it too. You yeah. know? And his desperation, God knows how much doubt must have been going through the man's mind. You know, he he was just forging his career. He was mm. the talk of Vienna. You know, come from this German backwater and was turning the the capital of music upside down at the time. All of that lay before him, and and his body was failing him. You know, I mean, yeah. it must have been incredibly devastating. Can I ask a slightly? Um road question if Beethoven were to be here to come back um, and he was sitting in the console what do you think he'd make of your piece testament (laughs) you don't have to answer I don't know of course one would hope that he would get into the 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 spirit of it I mean he would certainly then recognize something of himself because I do reference a, a a string quartet movement mm. of his from the first Razumovsky the slow movement yeah. in particular the slow movement of the first Razumovsky quartet um, which in the context of the first version of this piece being for just strings um, seemed an appropriate um, point of reference what he would make of what I've done with it God knows but you know I mean he was he was pushing forward so uh, himself, so I, you know, I hope he would sort of recognise something of that will in my own music. Yeah. But um, who's to say? And there you have it, the fantastic Brett Dean. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with him. Hero Worship takes place at Southbank Centre's Queen Elizabeth Hall on Tuesday 8th of May at 7.30pm. You can buy tickets at cls.co.uk, where if you're 16 to 25, a student and are signed up to our CLS Fiverr scheme, you can book £5 tickets. Tickets are also available at southbankcentre.co.uk and you can keep up to date with event information via the hashtag CLS at the QEH. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a nice shout out on Apple Podcasts or you can hit the like button or repost it on your own SoundCloud feed. Your feedback is very important and we love to hear from you about your own live experiences. A big thanks to Brett Dean for appearing in our podcast, to Southbank Centre and to our executive team. Coming soon is more about our participation programme and our 15th season in residence at Oppenheim Park. See you then.